The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Dodd, page 23 of his book on parables, says this. Somewhat overstated, I think, but here he goes. While the allegory is merely a decorative illustration of teaching supposed to be accepted on other grounds, well, I doubt whether premier allegorists would accept that without, <laughs> without a fighting. <laughs> Uh, while the allegory is merely a decorative illustration of teaching supposed to be accepted on other grounds, the parable has the character of an argument. And I would comment, only some do. But I think, nevertheless, it's worth pondering, all right? Because um, I think he is, there's a grain of truth in this, or I wouldn't have been quoting it in the first place, all right? The parable has the character of an argument in that, it entices the hearer to a judgment upon the situation depicted and then challenges him directly or by implication to apply that judgment to the matter at hand. For instance, Nathan's parable to David, Old Testament. This is uh, 2 Samuel 12. That is not, by any stretch of the imagination, merely a decorative illustration of teaching supposed to be accepted on other grounds. Although Nathan has to assume that David has a sense of justice, right? You know, and the parable goes on. I hope you're familiar with it. Uh, he sets up an illustration that appeals to David's sense of justice. And David makes a pronouncement of this man deserves to die because he's shown no mercy and so on. So it entices the hearer to a judgment upon the situation depicted. That's exactly what happened to David and then challenges him directly or by implication to apply that judgment to the matter at hand. And that, that's where Nathan's parable is so beautiful because he says, you are the man, right? <laughs> and uh, in case David still doesn't understand, even then tells David how it applies to him. But my observation concerning that is that in Nathan's parable, the effectiveness of the parable depends I think quite a bit on there being a considerable amount of detail of correspondence between the invented story of the lamb and the poor man and the rich man and so on and David's actual situation. In other words, it only work if in fact it's an allegory. <laughs> so the fact is, you see, that it refutes Dodd's idea that an allegory is merely a decorative illustration. And in fact, it almost turns it on his head in saying to be persuasive in the way that Dodd is, is uh, indicating often a parable has to be, has quite a bit of detail, striking amount of correspondence in order to overcome the resistance of the person who otherwise is going to say, no, that's not really relevant. That's not me, right? What about the parable of the lost sheep, for instance? I mean, we can't spend a lot of time going into this, and partly, you know, if you do work on a parable, 
look for this kind of thing, right? Whether there isn't some element of conviction. Right? The parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15 is told in the context of the Pharisees and the scribes who were murmuring because Jesus uh, received sinners and ate with them. And it, it en enables him to, um, to ask probingly whether that is an appropriate, even on their terms, basically. You see, if they are the righteous people, but uh, here are people in need. So it becomes something of a persuasive speech that uh, is intended to, to ask the scribes and the Pharisees to rethink their uh, critical views of Jesus' ministry. Okay, so I think there is something to be said uh, for Dodd's observation that uh, there is some, at least some parables have the character of an argument, as he says. Okay, then... This is point seven. Dodd's definition of a parable is this. The parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness. Let me pause. You've got the, uh, that's page 16 of Dodd, but you've also, I've printed it out there for you. You don't have to take it down. But let me inject some comments here. Metaphor simile is already two levels of meaning, right? But I've broadened it out. It can be an exemplary story, right? So I think this is a little too narrow, but still it's, it's on the right track. Metaphor simile drawn from nature or, I say from nature of common life, that's a misprint, nature or common life. Nature that is growing seeds, common life, shepherds and, and uh, you know, people who give feasts, that kind of, that's what he's thinking of. Arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness. Now that's worth thinking about too. Uh, although any good storyteller to a certain extent does things, right? But, but there's particular concern in Jesus' case to have people pay attention because of the weighty religious significance of what he has to teach. And there's something here, I think, that is related to the idea of the mashal. Because a proverb, you see, think, think of this stuff in the, in the book of the Proverbs, is often pithy. It, it, um, it's vivid or it's strange. You have to think about it a little bit sometimes, right? And that's productive. It's not, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, these dynamics equivalence theory of translation often said, the point is to make everything clear. No, it isn't. <laughs> Because you can achieve things sometimes precisely if everything is not transparent and on the surface. You, you get people thinking. All right. And leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about it worth paying attention to, asking yourself whether the point, whether the crafting of a parable isn't sometimes not to make everything transparent immediately to tease it into active thought, interesting. But I would say this too, that the generation of two levels of meaning, shepherds and sheep on the one hand and God and sinners on the other hand, for instance, the, the existence of two levels of meaning automatically creates a possibility at least, theoretically, of misreading the second and vital level, right? Because you start out with a story of shepherds and sheep, but clearly that's not the main thing, you see. 
there is a second level. Well, what is it? Because there's two levels, rather than a direct statement, now God is concerned to go after and find, you know, you could, you could do it literally, right? But because it's not said, first of all, literally, there is automatically, at least theoretically, the possibility of misreading the second level. Although I believe some parables, at least, are easy, quote, unquote. For instance, the parable of the wicked tenants in Luke 20, 9 to 19. We turn over to that. Now, I don't mean to say every aspect and every implication of the parable is easy, but on the level of saying, what does this stand for, <laughs> right? Of the sort of elementary level, Luke 9, not line, Luke 29, 20, verse 9. Now, I won't read the whole thing, but this is the he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. You probably remember the rest of this story. He sends others, finally he sends his son. Verse 19, look at it. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They were not dummies. <laughs> And they didn't even need to be terribly smart to figure it out. <laughs> this is fairly transparent, right, to the degree that even his enemies can see what he's getting at, although they don't believe it, right? You know, they, don't, they aren't persuaded in a positive sense to desist from their attempts. So you could say in a sense that they understand it, in a sense they don't understand it, right? But on the level of a, you know, a basic decoding of the thing and saying that the owner stands for God and the tenants stand for Israel or perhaps particularly the leaders of Israel and the, you know, the people who are sent are prophets and finally Christ himself. That's fairly straightforward. But some parables also are hard or at least harder. The parable of the sower, Luke 8, 4 to 8, the disciples have to ask it. Now, that parable comes with an interpretation, but not everybody, if you look at it carefully, not everybody heard the interpretation. The disciples went and asked Jesus. So if you take the parable without its subsequent interpretation, then it is, at least comparatively, harder because even the disciples weren't quite sure what was the point. Yeah, yeah. I think. At this point in the course, at least, I'm encouraging you to have an open mind, <laughs> but also not to assume that they all have to be the same degree of easiness or difficulty, right? Why, why should we assume that? And it certainly looks, I mean, I'm looking at these things at an elementary point of view at this point and saying, doesn't it look to you as if at one point, this one parable, that people got the point. Now, even there, there might be some difficulty, you know, if we didn't have this first century background, because the allusion to the vineyard is based on something in Old Testament, Isaiah 5, most, most directly. So you're saying, well, we, yeah, we, we do sometimes need that, or we might be puzzled at, at, at how the, uh, although we have the text, you know, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way, because they, they knew he had spoken this parable against them. With that much help, even if we didn't have some of this background, then we could sort of figure it out. So that's nice, but I think the observation that sometimes it's useful to have the background is nice. And remember the parable of mustard seed, where lo and behold, this thing that looks rather simple on the surface, and this thing about the birds of the air making nests in the branches may not 
be so simple, maybe that is this illusion. So there are things like that. So I would agree with the people who are saying, well, let's make some explorations of the environment. But I don't want us to get committed in a sort of a priori fashion to assuming that all the parables are going to be equally easy or equally difficult. And it doesn't look that way to me uh, either. But I think I will, I'm not through with that either, Matt, uh, and you probably can guess that. Uh, we will inevitably come back and, and you know, keep working at that issue because it is an important issue. And I think you're right to have brought it up of saying, even in terms of modern interpretation, we have a whole spectrum of, of how people think it's appropriate to react. Okay, well, with that much said, where are we in our outline? So there's Dodd's definition, which I'm not throwing out as a good definition in every respect, but as a, as a, a statement arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and at least provoking us to think, right? If I may paraphrase somewhat what he says about parables, gonna use his, his own definition as something to, at least to keep in mind as one possibility of things that parables may do. Capital C then, the parable of the sower. Now we're gonna look at a particular parable and I hope eventually you will see why this particular parable is uh, of uh, particular importance uh, and so we're going to spend some time on it. The parable of the sower, uh, which occurs, as you may be aware, in three uh, places uh, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. Uh, and uh, we will look mostly at the Lucan version, not uh, for any particular reason except that I used to teach more on Luke than on Matthew and Mark. <laughs> Uh, so I feel, you know, a little more at home, but uh, really all three versions, of course, will be relevant. Okay, so point one is Dodd's challenge concerning parables in general, but of the sower in particular. He says, yet it must be confessed that the Gospels themselves give encouragement to this allegorical method of interpretation. Now, Dodd is a representative of the single point theory that I've described, all right? That, no, I haven't described it very well, but... Boucher certainly interacts with it, but the idea is basically that each, that Jesus put parables, not allegories, right? They're using that false distinction, and that he had then one point for each in each of them. And this began with Euler, uh, primarily, as I said. Euler thought that the point was a moral one, and people like Dodd disagree with the what Euler makes out of the parables, but they don't disagree that there's one point. And then after he said this. He says, it must be confessed that the Gospels themselves give encouragement to this allegorical method of interpretation. Mark interprets the parable of the sower, Mark 4, 13 to 20, and likewise, I would indicate Luke 8, 11 to 15. And Matthew, the parable of the tares and the one of the dragnet, Matthew 13, 36 to 43, and 13, 49 to 50, on just such principles and both attribute their interpretations to Jesus himself. That's page 13. And uh, that's a quote from Dodd. And then point two is uh, that behind this is the judgment on Dodd's part and on the part of many of the historical critical tradition that the interpretation of some of these parables is inauthentic, that is, that it's something that comes from the early church and not from Jesus himself, and that the church got off on the wrong foot by interpreting the things allegorically 
although Boucher, you could see, is already refuting that. She is not herself, as far as I can see, an evangelical. She's in the critical tradition, but she's saying to other critics, let's be honest about what we're doing and admit <laughs> that uh, you know, all the parables are about the same in this way. Because before her, most people had said, oh, here's the parable of the sower. It's interpreted allegorically. We know that's wrong. So that's a secondary thing. That's the early church. You can see it, you know, it's used polemically, not only against this sort of hyper detail of some of, of church tradition in their interpretation, but it was used against the gospels themselves to claim that the interpretations were secondary, were not from Jesus, even though they claimed to be from Jesus. They were later inventions of the church and went the direction of what the, the scholars called allegory, a many point thing, where, but they falsified the meaning of Jesus. So then you see that gave them lots of space to try to recover the authentic meaning of the, you know, you can go on and on about this but it becomes a little bit absurd in the light of Boucher's criticisms because the whole thing is really built on the sands of an unclear distinction. Nevertheless, even if we don't accept that distinction, the question remains from the critics whether the interpretations that are given to us in the Gospels are secondary, that is, their additions by the early church. Um, and Dodd objects in particular that in the interpretation, the seed is the word of God, but the crop is classes of people, and that this really does not mesh. So he says the interpretation really does not work. But I would observe, and that's a sign of its inauthenticity, and once having established that one interpretation is inauthentic, you know, then it's a domino, it's much easier uh, to claim that others are as well. But my response to that would be that the breaking away from a one-to-one -one correspondence, a very neat and, and as it were, mathematical or, or uh, mechanical correspondence between the two levels indicates an allegory which is somewhat looser, you might say, but not that it's therefore inauthentic. And the whole argument of inauthenticity, I think, is mostly based on this bogus distinction between um, parable and allegory that we've already seen uh, being shot down by uh, Boucher. But even though Dodd's objections are no good, what do we say to the general thing? Well, I do not think you can prove to a critic that these things are authentic. That is, that they go back to Jesus. How would you? Because he's skeptical to begin with, you know, and just so I end up saying, well, they're in the Gospels and they're attributed to Jesus, why not? Right? Especially because I believe in the inspiration of the Gospels, but even if you believe that, that these people were trying to give you uh, what Jesus did, you know, even if you didn't believe that they were the inspired Word of God, but just that they were records from honest, honest human beings, why shouldn't we? And I think almost all the resistance has come by people who have their own agenda, when you think about it. Now, yeah, there are people who are saying, well, the interpretation contains words that are not otherwise uh, there, you know, on the lips of Jesus in, in other passages. Well, of course they contain words like that because the interpretation brings in uh, things that he doesn't elsewhere talk about. I mean, that, you know, you can, you can produce these arguments because the vocabulary is unusual. Well, it's unusual because he never has occasion elsewhere to talk about exactly these issues again, you know. So... So I think the arguments that are often used are flimsy. Of course, an author can say something different. <laughs> and he can say something a little different in the interpretation than he said in the, uh, you know, in the 
uh, in the story that he gave. So um, I can't prove it to somebody you know, who doesn't trust the gospel writers, but neither can they make a, any kind of reasonable case against it. So you know, it's a standoff, I think, even within the framework of worldly arguments, within the framework of Christian arguments, I think we, we have solid reason for trusting the gospel's uh, reports and believing that these, uh, these, uh, the interpretations, the longer interpretations then, uh, are authentic. Okay, uh, having said that, uh, next point is point three, the central basic meaning of the parable of the sower. Let's look at it. Luke 8. Uh, we haven't yet read this even to ourselves, and I know it's familiar to, I would suppose, all of you, but let's read it, refresh our memories. Uh, beginning with verse 4, while a large crowd was gathering and the people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than it was sown. When he said this, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Okay, so let us first, A, talk about the verses 11, 15, which give uh, what appears to be an interpretation. Now, the NIV says this is the meaning of the parable, so it decides uh, very uh, uh, clearly for you, basically pronounces that this is an interpretation. I think that's a correct judgment, but if you look at the Greek, this is the parable. That's a little more cryptic than this is the meaning of the parable, but Substantively, I think the NIV then is right, that it, and what you've got is clearly something that is an interpretation. In verse 11, Jesus says, the seed is the word of God. But you might say, even more specifically, the seed is the word of Jesus. Because in context, the issue is about the reception of the kingdom of God, right? And he says earlier, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, verse 10. And the kingdom of God is not just the rule of God over the universe at all times, remember, right, from the Gospels course, I hope you had something like that, but is the dawning of the saving reign of God, which is taking place in Jesus' ministry. So what he's teaching is not simply a truth for all times alone. So the interpretive point of all this is that the interpretation Jesus gives, though it is an interpretation, is not the fullest possible interpretation. He could have been even more specific and more elaborate in explaining. Now the seed is the word of God that I am giving out in my ministry, you see. Could have said that. And then he goes on, verse 12, 
there are people who show no response to Jesus. Something like that is going on. There are people, verse 13, who are temporary followers, right? This, the plant springs up. It appears to be going well. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, peras mu, they fall away. Luke 9, 23. And then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, what I'm doing is to say, in effect, that Jesus' statements, which might not be absolutely perfectly clear in and of themselves, it's useful to interpret often and to illustrate. If we illustrate them by what's going on in his own ministry, it becomes possible to do it. Okay, so Jesus elsewhere in his ministry is saying something similar about followers, that there may be people who sort of get on board, who think of themselves as followers, but they are not willing to deny themselves. Or verse 14, the seed that fell among the thorns, as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. You think of the character of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 24 to 34. Now, to be sure, the rich young ruler never became a follower of Jesus. But his problem is similar to that of many people who are, you know, contemplating uh, following or thinking of themselves as followers in some vague sense. And then verse 15, I take it, is talking about the true disciples. Now, I've already begged a lot of questions because uh, not everybody reads the parable that way. Um, and let me say something briefly about the, the problem here. There are four different soils, if you want to call the path a soil at all. You know, four different pieces of ground with varying qualities, corresponding to four different types of people. That's fairly clear. But there is a dispute among some interpreters, among evangelicals particularly, whether the contrast is between the first three and the last, or between perhaps the first one and the rest. And, and partly it gets into the issue of the carnal Christian theory. What does it take to be saved? Does it take some kind of minimal response of believing in Jesus or does it take being a super disciple? I mean, that's the way some people would formulate it maybe. So the question is partly of people feeling the fruit bearing is sort of looking to them like mature discipleship and surely just to be saved isn't that extends of a requirement. And so they're looking at these other soils and saying, well, not all Christians may bear fruit, but they're still Christians, you see. They're thinking that kind of thing. Now, there's no doubt that you could tell a parable that had something of that force. You could, you could. <laughs> the question is whether Jesus' parable is intended to have that force. I'm not gonna, I'm not wanting to argue that there, although the carnal Christian theory is a problematic theory I think, in terms of simply biblical doctrine, right? And I don't want to get into the details of that. I do want to concede to these people at least the fact, yes, Christians can vary in their fruitfulness, right? And there may be some question about that, and we would still allow that some people may be saved, as it were, by the skin of their teeth, even though they don't show much fruit, and, you know, God judges the heart, and so all those things, right? But, but we have to come back to asking about this parable. And what I don't want to do, and what I want to urge you not to do right away, is to pull it as if it were immediately addressed to the modern world, rather than at least immersing ourselves a little bit in the first century and ask, how does it come across? And I think the, how it comes across is a story to an agricultural community. For a farmer, every, all this stuff does no good unless at the end you get some fruit. 
And, and I grew up on a farm. <laughs> and I know, and you, I mean, intuitively, it's obvious, farmers care about getting some yield. <laughs> and so the story develops, and you get the stories of what happens to these various yield, and the farmer instinct in these people is saying, well, now what's the next? What's next? You know, there's no relief for them in terms of feeling that the story has reached its completion until you finally got a good soil, and not only good soil, but you've actually got the fruit. And then they say, okay, you know. And from the farmer's point of view, the last category is set off from the other three. And from the story point of view, because of the way in which the tension is there until the last one, you see. So respecting the, the character of the thing as a story already gives you a clue that the true disciples are being separated from various pretend and halfway would-be disciples. So I'm confident that that is the way to go uh, with, given the historic setting of this parable. And you might almost put it this way, that in a sense there are two categories of response to Jesus' message rather than four. Now, he, clearly I want to respect the fact that he, he has four character, categories. But underlying that, the basic distinction is between the first three, which in the end are common, are together, still don't give the fruit, the crop. And that is confirmed, I believe, by 8.10, where there is a twofold distinction. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Who's you? Verse 9, his, para, his disciples asked him. He's been speaking to a large crowd, verse 4 people coming to him from town after town. That's distinguished from his disciples who asked him what the par this parable meant, okay? has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables. Well, that's the crowd, you see. So you've got here a twofold distinction between you and others. So you might summarize that Jesus' word calls forth faith and what? Non-faith, right? you get both adequate response and inadequate response. And you can already take a stab at a possible, we're not through with the parable, and it's dangerous to take these stabs before you're through, but let's face it, this is the way our minds work. You could take a stab already at an application, 2 Corinthians 2.15. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Now here's, you know, it sounds like this same twofold distinction, really, in essence. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. That there's the integrity of the word of God, and again, that brings us into connection, of course, with Jesus. There's nothing the matter with this, the seed. Okay. There seems also to be a suggestion that the response is in accord with what one possesses. And you look at Luke 8, 18, uh, and I'm going to have to come back to 16 to 18 eventually, but I think it's not entirely disjointed from the preceding parable, although it's much more mysterious in some ways. 8, 18, therefore consider carefully how you listen. See that? That really is similar. You know, the issue of hearing the word of God is there in the preceding parable of the sower. Take, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. Two categories, right? But also the issue of, of increase versus 
unfruitfulness seems to be there. And definitely here, a stress on the, the issue of the future depends on the present. What you have, if you do have, more will be given to you. And it seems you know, to link in then with the idea of the soils, because the soils are different, suggesting the people are different. How are they different? Is it too much in the light of this view to say they are different in terms of what they already have? What do they have? I mean, that's not defined, right? Except the one has an honest and good heart, and the other don't have honest and good hearts. It's clear they're choked by the riches and, and pleasures uh, of life. So something of that is coming out, at least. OK, now, second step uh, B is to look at verses 9 and 10, where his disciples asked him what this parable meant. And as we've observed, two classes of people are distinguished in verses 9 and 10. Although, we must qualify that, that it is not a distinction that people cannot cross over. In other words, the people who are outside, there's clearly this openness in Jesus' ministry, right? The outsider is invited in. So we must not think of this as, as it were, the others and the you as being permanently static categories, right? because people are crossing, people are becoming disciples, and some people are fading away. And even the parable itself makes that clear, right? Because there's this action of, of the growth or, or lack thereof. And so I would argue that verse 10 is also an interpretation of the same parable. Now, it's not obvious, right? His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, is that already the interpretation? Well, maybe, maybe not, right? Verse 11 clearly does begin the interpretation. This is the meaning of the parable, right, as the NIV puts it um, somewhat more explicitly than the Greek. But 11 clearly begins the interpretation, so perhaps 10 is just a side comment. But it isn't just a side comment when you actually look at its content because it's dealing with this issue, this very issue of uh, insiders and outsiders and their reaction to Jesus' word, but also it is very similar to the conclusion of verse 18. Whoever has will be given more. Who is that? Well, it's the disciples. It's you who have the secrets of kingdom of God, you see. And whoever does not have, that's the other, or at least similar, okay? Similarly, Mark 13, sorry, Matthew 13, 12. Matthew 13 is the parable of the sower, among other parables. 13:12, whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Now, he's, Matthew has put that saying, or similar saying what Luke has, in a different position in the text. But I think that's illuminating. It's right after the statement in verse 11, the kingdom knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. And then immediately after this, is has and has not. Okay? So that indeed tends to reinforce my understanding that verse 10 fits together with the meaning of the parable as a whole. Now, and it also seems to be an answer to verse 9, where Jesus says, where the disciples asked him what the parable meant. So I think that verse 10 is both an explanation of the parable of the sower. It's a mini explanation, as it were, right, which is then expanded. And according to Matthew 13, it is an, an explanation of why Jesus speaks in parables. If you look over at Matthew 13, Matthew 13, 10, 
And I won't deal with the harmonistic problems. I think that these are harmonizable. But what I want to utilize is the information from both sources. 13.10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Now that's, in Luke they're asking, I think both questions are inevitably what they're asking, but this one, why do you speak to the people in parables? In Luke it is, what's the meaning of this parable? Why do you speak to them in parables? Answer, verse 11, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but not to them. But in Luke 8, that same basic answer is the interpretation of the parable of the sower. It's both why do you speak to them in parables and it's the meaning of the parable of the sower, or at least a condensed explanation of that meaning. Which means that the parable of the sower is a parable about parables. Well, you ought to be able to see that anyway, right? Because it's a parable about the word of God, but what's the most prominent word of, form of the word of God in the immediate context? Parables that Jesus is speaking. So, you know, it follows one way or another, but it just, really, the way these two things, you know, the way Matthew's and Mark's, Matthew's and Luke's use hangs together, I think even more clearly shows, will make sense if the parable of the sower is a parable about parables. So to interpret the parable is simultaneously to give an answer, why do you speak to them in parables? It's to explain the workings of parables, okay? And that is undoubtedly one reason why the parable of the sower holds a key place in introducing the whole section on parables in Matthew 13. It's the first thing Matthew has out front. And it is the first of Mark's main chunk of parables in Mark 4, 1 to 34. And similarly, in Luke 8, it's among, at least, the first uh, things uh, that Jesus offers in parables in Luke. Okay. At the same time, and this is now point C, confirmation from Luke 8 to 16. At the same time, oh, well, that's the same kind of thing, right? That Luke 8, 16 to 18 is really about, look at, look at 17. For there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Well, that seems to be about parables in terms of, well, these things are hidden, but now that they're going to be opened. And that would confirm the same line of reasoning. At the same time, these are parables, and this particular parable is a parable of the kingdom. Luke 8.10 stresses the fact that these are the mysteries of the secrets, or secrets is the word uh, used in NIV, mysteria, they are mysteries of the kingdom of God. And the word mysterion does, I think, suggest not only secret, but secret and to be revealed over and over again. It is things that will ultimately be manifested. Ultimately, as we know from our post-resurrection context, it is the mystery of Christ himself, who he is, as well as what he is doing, that is, going up to the cross and the resurrection. And there's an obvious sense in which that's all become manifest because it's happened, right? And now it's being announced by the gospel writers. But even the resurrection, interestingly, is hidden in a certain respect from the outsider. It is announced to all and sundry as a fact, but Acts 10, 41 to 43, makes a certain point about the resurrection itself. Acts 10, 41, he was not seen by all the people, that is, in his resurrected appearance, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
he didn't appear to the Pharisees. It was to the insiders, if we may use that rather uh, insidious and threatening terminology. But whatever word you use, it was, but it just, really, the way these two things, you know, the way Matthews and Mark's, Matthews and Luke's use hangs together, I think, even more clearly shows will make sense if the parable of the sower is a parable about parables. So to interpret the parable is simultaneously to give an answer, why do you speak to them in parables? It's to explain the workings of parables, okay? And that is undoubtedly one reason why the parable of the sower holds a key place in introducing the whole section on parables in Matthew 13. It's the first thing Matthew has out front. And it is the first of Mark's main chunk of parables in Mark 4, 1 to 34. And similarly, in Luke 8, it's among at least the first uh, things uh, that Jesus offers in parables in Luke. Okay. At the same time, and this is now point C, confirmation from Luke 8.16. At the same time, oh well, that's the same kind of thing, right? That Luke 8.16 to 18 is really about, look at, look at 17. For there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Well, that seems to be about parables in terms of, well, these things are hidden, but now that they're going to be opened. And that would confirm the same line of reasoning. At the same time, these are parables, and this particular parable is a parable of the kingdom. Luke 8.10 stresses the fact these are the mysteries of the secrets, or secrets is the word uh, used in NIV, mysteria, they are mysteries of the kingdom of God. And the word mysterion does, I think, suggest not only secret, but secret and to be revealed over and over again. It is things that will ultimately be manifested. Ultimately, as we know from our post-resurrection context, it is the mystery of Christ himself, who he is, as well as what he is doing, that is, going up to the cross and the resurrection. And there's an obvious sense in which that's all become manifest because it's happened, right? And now it's being announced by the gospel writers. But even the resurrection, interestingly, is hidden in a certain respect from the outsider. It is announced to all and sundry as a fact, but Acts 10, 41 to 43, makes a certain point about the resurrection itself. Acts 10, 41, he was not seen by all the people, that is, in his resurrected appearance, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He didn't appear to the Pharisees. It was to the insiders, if we may use that rather uh, insidious and threatening terminology. But whatever word you use, it was the resurrection itself, the resurrection appearances show a kind of, of um, continuation of something of this difference between those who receive it and those who do not. And there, too, of course, there is a call to faith, right? 
there's an announcement of this reality, but it remains not received by some and received by others. Okay, we are on Roman numeral three. And under that, capital C, the parable of the sower. And uh, then three, we're still on the basic meaning. And under that, uh, C, confirmation from Luke 8, uh, 16 to 18. Now that material is uh, what looks like the next parable. And um, I can't recall exactly how much I discussed this, but um, uh, as I th- did, I observed that um, it occupies a place in Mark 4, 21 to 25. So Mark 4 has the, begins with the parable of the sower. And uh, then uh, the parable of the lamp on the stand immediately comes after it in Mark as well as Luke. Um, and it seems to be, although it is less transparent than the parable of the sower, it seems also to be a parable about parables. And it's a parable about mystery, right? Which uh, sends you back to 810, where there's discussion, the knowledge of the secrets, or it's mysteria. Mysteries of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others they speak in parables. So I uh, think, uh, you know, without any context, if you just read 16 to 18 of Luke 8, and perhaps even worse, if you read it, not even know the, that it comes from Jesus, it can be uh, really difficult to try to figure out what is going on. But if you have it in context, uh, it seems to be traveling, I think, uh, in a way analogous to or par- parallel to what is the concern earlier. Uh, it is the mystery of the meaning of parables, the mystery of Christ himself, of who he is, and uh, a mystery made manifest in the resurrection. Now, uh, let's do 3D, which is assessing the scriptural quotation, Luke 8.10b. In 8.10b, you have the quotation from Isaiah 6. I speak in parables so that, quote, those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Look also at Matthew 13 because Matthew does something similar, but actually there's somewhat of an expansion on it. A little more elaborate than what Luke has. This is why I speak to them in parables. This is Matthew 13, 13. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous, they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal heal them. Okay, now uh, 14 and 15 uh, come from Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, and uh, 13, 13 is from the same passage, but somewhat, you know, more freely rendered. So what you, uh, you know, when Matthew quotes a passage that long, you suspect that he's serious, (laughs) 
uh, you know, even if he didn't, if he just quoted a few words, you'd suspect he was serious. But this makes it even more obvious, I think, there's something fairly significant about the background in Isaiah. What is the significance of this quotation? Well, in Isaiah, there's a situation where Isaiah is sent to the people of Israel, and the people of Israel, uh, this is the, the preacher's nightmare. Go and preach to these people, and they won't listen to you. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's somewhat of a condensed and, and popularized version of Isaiah is, is that, essentially. And what apparently is the case then is that Jesus himself is teaching that the reaction to his own teaching is going to, in certain respects, parallel the reaction to Isaiah. In other words, there will be a resistance to it. There will be people who refuse to hear it. And the analogy between Isaiah's situation and Jesus' situation rests, we can infer, rests on a deeper redemptive historical structure, which is laid out at some considerable length in Acts 7. Now, this is going, you know, a little bit different, different place, but Acts 7 is Stephen's speech, and it's Acts 7, 1 to 60. I mean, you already hear the length of that, when Stephen's speech is mostly a recital of the refusal of Israel to really understand and obey the Lord. And then at the climax of the speech, he says basically, as your fathers did, so do you. So uh, he's warning them of the dangers of, you know, uh, that are not are real because they're provable from the Old Testament and its history. Well, Isaiah is, in effect, one sort of peak of this type of resistance. Now, there is another issue here, and that is the significance of the connection. Isaiah 8, uh, sorry, Luke 8.10, uh, the NIV translates it, um, but to others I speak in parables so that, and it's that so that that I want to focus on. And the underlying uh, Greek has hina. Mark 4 also has hina at the same point. Matthew 13.13 13, at a similar point has hati because. And uh, that already uh, is enough to create some discussion. But... Um, it's a passage of such difficulty that it's created quite a bit of interpretation. At least, and this is really the tip of the iceberg, at least three main lines of interpretation. And uh, really, I'm going to add a fourth under that. So um, if you're taking notes under this, this is all under the scriptural quotation, all right? And point... One, then, it is under this is that the significance of the quotation content is some kind of parallel between Isaiah and Jesus. Second, that it rests on a larger redemptive historical analogy as uh, is visible in Acts 7. And third, the significance of the hina. okay? And under that, then, we're going to have some subpoints. A, the uh, first view is that the uh, hina is to be interpreted as meaning so that in the sense of an actual result. And now you will see the differences I lay out the other inter 
interpretations. That is a possible use of hina elsewhere in the Greek language, but the difficulty of it right here is that there is another word, hosta, and actually more than one way you, you can express this for expressing actual result. That is, Jesus speaks in parables. As a matter of fact, people do not understand on some level. Now, we have to deal with that too, right? Because is it like Israel of old? They heard and understood after a fashion. That is, they could probably have told you what the prophet had said, and they refused to believe. Second interpretation, this is B then, is that Hina is a kind of ellipsis, that it's understood in the sense of that it might be fulfilled what scripture says that. And so that Hina is a sort of condensed fulfillment formula. That is, um, this, he spoke in parables so that the scripture in Isaiah might be fulfilled. So that has the proper sense in order that, right? See, which is a normal rendering of Hina, though it has a range. All right, so it's, these things took place in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, but you have to fill in. It has to be understood that it's a kind of shorthand, and it really isn't uh, um, easy to demonstrate that this is a common shorthand, but it's at least uh, plausible. That is, these things took place in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, this particular scripture. And the third C, is that Hina has its ordinary sense of in order that. In other words, Jesus spoke in parables in order that people would not understand. Now, it's that third thing which I think has generated most of the alternatives because people don't like it, <laughs> right? It seems to some modern interpreters uh, incredible that Jesus would do something in order not to be understood. But this, it isn't quite as unintelligible as that because against the background of Isaiah, the sense would be he speaks in parables in order that people would be blinded in the sense of curse. Uh, the Israelites, when, when uh, God says to Isaiah, now go and speak to this people, and they won't hear, it's not because God says, well, you know, I have it in for them, and I'm going to make it impossible for them to understand even though they want to. It's rather the opposite, right? It's they're already guilty. That's the problem, and Isaiah 1 and so on has gone into that. They're already guilty, and this is, drives them a, a deeper into guilt, their refusal to understand. So is that the meaning? And uh, even seeing that that then would... Uh, make some kind of sense out of the Hina, uh, people don't, I think, have resisted it because they don't like the idea that Jesus himself would engage in a curse activity. However, there is elsewhere in Luke a similar kind of language, Luke 10, 21 and 22. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, 
and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Not only does Jesus speak of a hiding, but he is happy about it. So if you think, it's not you especially, but if the New Testament scholar thinks that the in order that view has to be rejected because it's incompatible with the gracious and mild behavior of Jesus elsewhere, then really he has something that's even more pointed to deal with uh, later on in Luke 10. And one may note that the connection between Luke 10, 21 to 22, if you use synoptic parallels at least, there is a, a kind of connection between them because immediately after this saying in Luke comes the saying in verse, well, verse 22, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him is again a restriction, you see. Others apparently have hidden, so that's continuing the same thought. But then verse 23, then he turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the issue of understanding and seeing is still there, though in a slightly different way. But that, uh, those words are reproduced, that is 23 and 24 are reproduced almost verbatim, in Matthew 13, 16 to 17. If you turn over there, 13, 16 to 17, is pretty much the same words. And they come right after the quotation in Isaiah. So in Matthew, you see, these two thoughts of the idea of hiding and revealing are directly linked. And this seems to be the significance, or at least part of the significance, of what's happening in Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. That is a curse function, a hiding from Israel because they're already hostile to God. And Isaiah 6, 9 to 10 is not quoted here alone, but also in Acts 28, 26 to 28, Paul comes to Rome, speaks with the Jewish leaders, talks with them all day, and in the end they go away, and he quotes from Isaiah this passage and says, now the Gentiles will listen. <laughs> so um, he has received an ambivalent response, actually. It looks like some, uh, some people among those Jews uh, were more favorable, but at least the group as a whole does not respond favorably, and Paul sees this as of a piece with the Isaiah passage. John 12, 38 to 40, similarly, at the end of Jesus' public ministry, John makes this statement with reference to the unbelief which uh, sprung up among those who saw Jesus' public works. And he quotes from the same passage. And in fact, then, in Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, the language is about as blunt and violent uh, as it ever gets in the scripture, uh, particularly in verse 10. Uh, verse 9 says, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Well, that itself is sort of a mystery statement. But then listen to verse 10. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. 
Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And that is a very direct way of talking about a hardening of perception and a shocking kind of thing until you recognize the background uh, of how corrupt and hardened Israel already was. So my conclusion is that this sense of the hardening function is also there in Luke. Right? There are several kinds of strands pointing in that direction. And the final piece of the argument, though not the, the most significant, is that even if you take the interpretation that sees the henna as short for in order that it might be fulfilled what was said in Isaiah, if you take that interpretation, it does not really solve, if you think this is a theological problem, can God harden people, then it doesn't really solve the problem. It just throws it back to the Old Testament. It appears to get it. You see, people want to protect Jesus. Surely Jesus would not do this, you see. But instead, you throw it back to the Old Testament, which, of course, Jesus endorses, <laughs> right? So uh, you don't really escape the problem either with respect to God the Father or God generically, right, because he already has said this in Isaiah, nor do you escape it with respect to Jesus because of Jesus' uh, attitude of submission and acceptance to the Old Testament. So, uh, one, so the point I'm making is that I think uh, that, that these uh, attempts to evade what... Uh, Grammatically speaking, is a fairly natural interpretation. The, the attempts are not plausible. Uh, then, fourth, after the, really, this might be still under three. Maybe I'll make it D, uh, because it's another attempt to deal specifically with the henna. Okay, so D under that is the uh, argument that the Aramaic, the underlying Aramaic, of Jesus' own words may be the rather colorless conjunction de. And this de in Aramaic, in fact, can sometimes have a sense approximating hati, which is the conjunction, because the conjunction that occurs in Matthew and hina the conjunction that occurs in Mark and Luke. See, now, let's catch ourselves up a bit here um, it, by looking at, um, in Matthew 13, 13, uh, look at the exact wording here. So, this is why I speak to them in parables. The NIV has, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not, they do not hear or understand. Now, Luke has the same wording uh, almost identically in Luke 8.10 where he says, uh, I, to others I speak in parables so that those seeing they may not see. Okay, Luke has the henna. Matthew, though it's not visible in uh, the NIV, has hati. You could translate it. This is why I speak to them in parables because though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. Actually, hati can not only mean because, but can introduce a direct quotation. But here it does seem to have the because functions. De can 
actually do that too, can introduce a, a quotation. It's very flexible. Now, what do we do with this? Well, you gotta, your hackles should be up <laughs> right away. You should be nervous about it because of the attempt to go behind the text, right? And it's speculative. Do we really know that Jesus, you know, had to and so on? But let, suppose for the sake of the argument, I mean, I'd rather just stick with the text as we have it, right? But suppose for the sake of the argument that this, this is right in this particular case, and it may be, because it's, it's a nice, neat explanation, because duh is broader and vaguer than either of these two. It explains why Matthew could come out with one and Mark and Luke come out with the other, you see. Nice, neat uh, explanation in one sense, but then the difficulty which that creates is, well, then are Mark and Matthew and Luke all imposing something on this? It's two different meanings, isn't it? Because in Matthew, look, I know that they're having problems, so I speak to them in parables suggesting, perhaps, to help them along, right, as a teaching tool because they don't really understand, so I give them what they, you know, what is adapted to their capacity, something like that. And you can make it sound very positive until you realize Matthew continues with the quote from Isaiah, which has this hardening thing. So, so you know, if you, took, if you took just that one verse, verse 13, all by itself you could say, well, the parables are overcoming, are wrestling with the hardness in sense of overcoming it. But I think, in fact, the two meanings are compatible because that's the nature of hardening, right? That you may, both that you may do things a bit differently because you know people are already hardened and that even what you do may result in more hardening. So it's a both and situation. And the duh, if there is a duh, now this is all speculative, right? But for the sake of the argument, grant that that's what Jesus actually said. But what did he mean, right? And what he meant, in effect, against the theology of Old Testament hardening would be that you could infer both, right? When you take it in the context of the theology of hardening, both that, you know, you can God continues to wrestle with this and sends the prophets, so on and that uh, that results, at least in the case of Isaiah, results in further hardening. And I think it is compatible with a certain open-endedness, we'll have to confirm that later, that you will find in certain parables. In other words, Jesus doesn't always spill the beans completely. But we'll, we haven't confirmed that yet, so you know, you'll have to hang on to that. All right, so my conclusion at this point is, yes, there is a hardening function, although it may be one of several functions, right? Because Matthew is, I think, indicating that the parables are on account of hardening that's already there, but of course they may also increase it. So it's complementary uh, truths. Right, I want to take each gospel in its own terms. If Luke wants to stress something different from Matthew, that's his privilege, but what I'm getting at now is we've also got a harmonistic problem potentially and uh, you know I want to, you to see how you might interact with the people who say well you know this is what really is going on right but I all then in the end you come back to Luke right and you say Luke is saying this and Matthew is saying this they may look 
very different until you see it's two sides of, the, of, a, of a larger picture. So I think they are harmonizable, but okay. Um, ramified meaning, point four. What do I mean by that? Well, you'll see. What I'm trying to explore now is something that's, you might call it meaning, you might call it something more like implications. Uh, first of all, A, this parable of the sower is a parable about Jesus' words and teaching. And that, um, I'm in effect mostly confirming things we've already seen, but the language of, for instance, the mystery of the mysteries of the kingdom of God or secrets of the kingdom of God, Luke 8.10, what are those mysteries? Well, they're all about his teaching and about he himself in the end. Him at the center of his Jesus' own person as well as his work. So it is certainly then a parable about Jesus' words and teaching. And the uh, picture of the sower, in the immediate context, if you ask, who is the sower? Well, the, the obvious person who's active, distributing the word of God in some sense, is Jesus himself. And what is the meaning of the parable? Understood as speaking about Jesus' teaching. It is that, pretty obviously, the response to Jesus' teaching, or even during his earthly life, is various, right? And we looked at the fact we had people uh, who were hostile, we had people who were sympathetic, the rich young ruler, uh, we had people who uh, had, were attracted, and we of course had true disciples. So we have various responses, and those responses are themselves an indication of heart attitude. Now that I deduce from the relation of the, the growth of the seed to the kind of soil. Okay, uh, B, it is a parable about Jesus' parables. More now, what's the difference between that? Because we're focusing not simply on everything he teaches, but on the parable specifically. And in confirmation of that, remember that I observed earlier that Luke 8.10 about gives, which gives a, a kind of mini interpretation of the parable is a response to verse nine. His disciples asked him what this parable meant, all right? So he interprets the parables but then he says, to others I speak in parables, plural. So he is, in effect, addressing, and Matthew confirms this, he's addressing why he's using parables and what the effects of parables in particular are. And that agrees with 8.18, as we've already seen. Consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will more be given. Whoever does not have even what he thinks he has will be taken away that uh, there are two classes of people, those who understand and those who hear the parables only. Now, the second confirmation of this is that simply the thing that Jesus, if you look at Jesus' words in his teaching, parables are perhaps the most conspicuous form, not the only one, but certainly stand out as being prominent aspect of his teaching. And so what is true of his teaching in general is true of parables in particular. What's the meaning on this level? It is certainly that the sower is to be identified with Jesus and that the parables themselves remain to a certain degree closed to one who does not accept the person of Jesus and his work, if I may say, as the key to understanding them. Now that 
maybe goes a little bit beyond what we've said before. But uh, earlier on when we discussed uh, Boucher and the business of figurative sayings, we observed that if you have a kind of saying or narrative on two levels that already introduces, at least theoretically, the possibility of misunderstanding. Now, the degree of difficulty may vary depending on context. And even here, we have one about you know, the parable of the lampstand, where if you had no context at all, it becomes pretty difficult. But I would argue generally that part of the key is the understanding of Jesus' own work. If the parables are parables about the kingdom and the kingdom is coming in Jesus' work, if you understand that, if you understand sympathetically something of what Jesus is doing, then you're in a better position to understand the parables. Okay, so that the parables and the works are to a certain extent mutually interpretive. And that may be one way in which hearts are tested. In other words, if you're already suspicious about Jesus' work, then when Jesus says, for instance, that the kingdom of God is like such and such, right? Well, you say that's interested, interesting maybe, but you're not disposed to identify the kingdom of God with what's already happening in Jesus' ministry. And without that identification, you lose a significant clue for the interpretation of the parable. So what I'm saying is there's a way of tracing out, at least partly, why it is that some people may understand better than other people. Right? Because if they're in sympathy with Jesus' own work, then they have a significant clue. Okay. And in effect, what I'm saying is that the, pe the people who are not sympathetic with the work of Jesus and the kingdom that is coming in that, who don't perceive that it's the kingdom of God is coming, are likely then not, all not properly to hear the word of God which he is proclaiming in the parables. Or to put it another way, the parables are predominantly parables of the kingdom. Now, not every one of them says that explicitly, but a good many do. And the kingdom is summed up in the person of Christ himself. Look at, um, well, not every aspect of this is visible every time, but look at Luke 13, 18. Now, this is one I think we started with. Luke 13, 18. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like, in the parable of mustard seed. And then verse 20, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? Verse 28, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves thrown out. And men will come from east and west, north and south. Well, that may not, it depends on whether you think of that as a parable. So that the person who is hardened with respect to the kingdom in general is in a more precarious position for understanding the parables and for understanding the person of Christ. And therefore is not likely to bear fruit in terms of larger understanding, right? And so the whole business of the parable of Sower saying, he is picked up in this later saying of the one who has more will be given and he who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Or, as I've already stated, but let me restate it a little more precisely. Jesus' actions interpret his words and vice versa. Words interpret the actions. Without the key of the relation of action to words, 
the parables do not define themselves nearly as well, nearly as clearly. Now, it depends on the parable, because we've already seen some, you know, the parable of the wicked tenants. Um, even his opponents understood after a fashion. Okay, so the point is the parable of the sower is, is talking about the way in which response to Jesus' parables may be different. And I think you can see, and this is beginning to touch on Matt's question, are the parables all clear or are they all terribly mysterious? Not only may it vary from parable to parable, but it may vary from person to person, <laughs> right? Depending on where, where the person is in terms of their response to the ministry of Jesus. Right, yes. Excellent. Right, did you, yeah, did everyone hear that about the Lazarus and, uh, and the rich man? I think that is a, a confirmatory point of saying that hardness of its heart is not something that is cured just by spectacular evidence that you have to deal with an inward problem. Good, good point. Okay. Uh, so it's a parable about Jesus. Parables in particular. C, it's a parable about gospel preaching in general. That is, it has implications that are broader even than Jesus' own earthly ministry. And in confirmation of this claim, Luke 8, 11 specifies that the seed is the word of God. It doesn't say, and there are various reasons why it doesn't say, not all of which um, uh, would travel this direction, but it doesn't say this is, the seed is the word of Jesus. It might have said that. It would be true to say that. But to say the seed is the word of God invites you then to expand a little beyond Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is an instance of the proclamation of the word, but the proclamation of the word continues then into Acts, right? Particularly if you're dealing with Luke and Acts. All communication of the word of God and all human response to the word of God throughout history does it conform to this pattern. And it seems that it does. And quite a bit earlier, didn't I, did I quote the passage from 2 Corinthians where Paul says we are a, a saver of life to life to those who are being saved? Did I quote that? It's worth quoting. People are looking a little bit as if I hadn't. Well, it's worth mentioning if I haven't done it. 2 Corinthians 2, the end of the chapter, uh, verse 15, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragments of life. So he says, Paul is in effect saying, there's a dual response. Remember we got this dual response, right? Although it's four responses, then I argue that the first three were, were all... Um, inadequate responses. Here we have two responses as well, but Paul, of course, is talking about his own post-Pentecost ministry of proclamation. And this broader implication, I think, is confirmed by the fact that Luke 8.10 uses a quotation from another stage of redemptive history, from Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. And Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, lo and behold, has, I think, a background in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus. The language of the hardening of heart to an alert Israelite would call to mind, I mean, the most prominent thing, if you were living in Isaiah's time, 